So as I was saying, it's baseball season. And I don't really follow baseball anymore. Uh, actually, I never really followed baseball. I loved to play baseball when I was a kid. And uh, I re- have a very distinct memory, and it's one of my favorite stories to tell on myself. When I was about 11, I think I was playing Little League baseball, and I always played shortstop. And I have a very vivid memory of something going wrong in the game. I don't know if I made an error or someone else made an error, but I pitched a fit. I mean, throwing the glove throwing my hat, stomping up and down, fit, right on the baseball field. And I was 11 years old. And so while I was in the midst of that, I realized various things. I really feel like an idiot while I'm mid-stomp, you know, or whatever. And also I remember my mom was in the stands, and she was watching me. And uh, that was a very interesting ride home from the baseball game that night. And I kind of got an earful, and she was very right to give me an earful. But something I realize from that story, and it kind of sticks with me, is that I didn't stop being my parents' son because I looked like an idiot on the baseball field, because I was pitching this very public temper tantrum on this baseball field. I didn't stop being my parents' son. They had some words for me. They had some correction that they wanted to make in my life, but it didn't mean that I suddenly became less of a beeheimer or became less their child. And uh, God had put me in their family. And I was their son because he had put me there. And so that was a a very, that's a firm relationship. That's a, a set relationship. There's not anything I can do to change that, right? Does that mean that my parents didn't have expectations for me? Oh, they had expectations for me. And they let me know all about them. And they were right to do so. The reason I bring up this story is because we are to a point in our book of Thessalonians. We're in 1 Thessalonians. You can flip to chapter 5 while I'm talking. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're nearing the end. And uh, we're going to be in in, uh, verses 12 and following today. And the way Paul usually wrote a book or a letter, these are really just letters to churches or to people, Uh, The way he would write it is he would start off the first half or the first portion, sometimes more than half, talking about things that were true, establishing truths about who we are. If you think about the book of Romans, think about the last time you read Romans and like up through even the first eight chapters, even the first 11 chapters, it's doctrinal things that are true about us in Christ. If we look back to my analogy, what he's saying is, Brennan, you are the son of your parents because of this, because of this. It has these implications. This is what it means. But you are the son of your parents. Okay? That's an established fact. And then later on in the book, in the last few chapters, he gets to things like how we should behave towards one another, how we should behave towards government. Right? He talks about some ethical commands, some moral commands that he's going to give. Right? And so the way we preach... We preach gradually through a book. You may have noticed that. It doesn't happen very quickly that we get through a book. First Thessalonians is five chapters. We've been on it several weeks, months even. And so the danger is when we're here at this part, at the very end of the book, right, when he has stated the doctrine, he's stated all that stuff, we're to the end of the book, and he's saying, okay, in light of those things, behave like this. Do this. Stop doing that. The danger for us is only to hear those commands and forget all that stuff that came before. These commands are super important or he wouldn't have written them. 
But they come after things that, that came before, right? And so some of the things that are true about us as Christians, as people who have uh, come into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, those things we need to keep in mind as we're going through this. What I don't want us to hear is, when I read these commands in a bit, for you to think to yourself, all right, so I say the command and then you tell yourself in your mind and then I'll be a good little Christian, right? So if it says, do not steal, and then I'll be a good little Christian. Don't think that in your mind. That's not, the, that's not what's going on, right? He wants you not to steal. He wants you not to uh, um, ignore these commands. He wants you to be walking in obedience to him, but it's not so that you can become more of what you already are. Had my mom looked down from the stands when I was on the baseball field throwing a giant fit, and had she seen me calm myself, gain control, not throw a fit, not throw anything else on the field, she would have been proud of me, right? But would I have been more of her son as a result of that? Would she have loved me more? No, she's my mom. She loves me, right? And so there are some things that are established fact and then there, there are other things that are the way we need to behave in light of those established facts. Some of the established facts are that I want to review for us for a bit, not just from, from Thessalonians, but from what we learn from all of Scripture. One is that there's a holy God, and two is that I'm not Him, okay? I fall far short of Him. And even my best efforts, because of my sin nature that I have inside of me, even my best effort falls far short it's tainted with sin and to tell you the truth i don't even always give my best effort do i nor do you we fall far short and so there's a gap between us and god and that's a problem it's insurmountable to us and so into that god sent his son jesus to take that penalty to bridge that gap so that we could be made right with god right and it's through faith in him that we are then made right with god When we are made right with God, he makes us his child. We become a child of God in a very similar way to to the way I am a child to my parents. All right? Those are the things that are established facts. All right? There are some other established facts when we look at Thessalonians, the doctrine that's being taught early on in Thessalonians that builds a, a foundation for us to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And I'll start with the, with the bad stuff. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 3 says we are destined for affliction in this world. All right? Established fact. Not really one I want to spend a whole lot of time dwelling on always, right? The Lord has his purposes for doing that, and he builds his kingdom through that. He develops character in us through that, but it's not always pleasant. All right? So I'm going to move on <laughs> from that one, okay? But we are destined for affliction in this world. All right? But the main thing we learn about, the main doctrine we learn about when we look at 1 Thessalonians is doctrine about the coming of the Lord. You've noticed in the last couple of weeks we've spent quite a bit of time talking about eschatology, talking about specifically the second coming of Christ, that he's going to come. And I just want to highlight some verses, some things to ha- for us to have in mind when we're thinking about this, that Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, will return from heaven and he will deliver us from the wrath to come because God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or are asleep, we might live with him. And we can all say amen to that, right? That is established fact. That is what is going on. Christ is going to return because we are not destined for that wrath. 
but to obtain salvation instead. Chapter 4 says that God's will for our sanctification, this is more established fact, God's will for our sanctification is that we abstain from sexual immorality because God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That's established fact. That's a statement of fact. It's an implied command to us. Therefore, don't be sexually immoral. But it's established fact that that's his will for us, for sanctification. And then finally, the Lord, this is from chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. The Lord can make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all. This is the Lord can do this in us so that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. That's great news. That is great news. Those are established facts, okay, that are established early on in the book. The Lord is going to return. He's got these things going on. He can work in us for, to help us, to make us, to love one another more and more, treat one another greater in greater ways of, uh, of grace towards one another, right? So I will point out to us in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return and Woody was very clear. We don't know exactly when that's going to be. It could be now or it could be in thousands of years. And we don't have a clue, right? Scripture just doesn't tell us. We don't really know. But here's what Jesus said. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch or in the third, that is late, late, late at night in the wee hours and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. We want to be those servants. That's the message of the book of Thessalonians to this point. Okay. So with all of that foundation, we're going to jump into our verses today. So if you'll look with me at chapter five. We're going to read 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in the established facts. We rejoice in what you have accomplished. That what you accomplished in sending Jesus to pay the penalty that I deserve that you made me your child, that I get to be a part of your family because of what you've done, not because I'm outstanding, but because I put my trust in Christ who is. I thank you for those established facts. I thank you that Jesus will return again. He will return for his bride, for the church. He will come again for me, for believers, to take them to be with him. He will judge the world but we're not destined for that wrath. But we're destined for salvation in Christ if we know him. So, Lord, in light of 
those established facts, in light of that truth, that foundation, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand these words that that, uh, your servant Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonica. Pray that we would not only understand them, but that we would take them to heart, that we would hear from you, that it would be empowered by your spirit, that we would have ears to hear, and that we would walk away understanding and desiring to walk in obedience to these things, knowing that it's empowered by you. You said you could do it. You said you would do it in us. So help us this morning as we turn to your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in light of all of these things that I've said, in light of these truths that I've talked about, point number one there in your outline, I want to talk about, because Paul talks about, behavior toward leaders. Behavior toward leaders, those who are ministering to us. All right, he says there in verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And just a few things I want to talk about in those verses because they're, they're um, very important for us. First of all, some of you have versions that say something other than respect. Uh, some of them say recognize. Some of them say honor. Some of them say acknowledge. And uh, the reason there's a little bit of ambiguity there is because it's a very simple word. It's to know. It says know them. Literally, it says know them. So what does that mean? Well, I think in this passage, in this context, what it's talking about is to acknowledge them. Because later on, we're going to get to the respecting, to the esteeming. But first of all, he's saying acknowledge them. Recognize who they are. Recognize them in their office, right? And who, who are these people we're recognizing? Well, first of all, he says there in verse 12, he says, uh, recognize or respect, acknowledge those who labor among you. Those who labor among you. And remember, he's writing to a church. He's writing to a congregation, not entirely unlike our congregation. And he's saying to them, there are some people who work hard among, among you, in your midst, for the kingdom. They're the ones who are doing the jobs that no one else wants to do. They're the ones who are always there. They volunteer and help out with such and such. They carry things that no one else wants to carry or clean up afterwards. I hate that. I hate cleaning up afterwards. And these people do that. Okay? There are people who are there doing that, serving in all kinds of ways. They're laboring. right? And he says, acknowledge these people. Recognize these people who labor among you. Okay, So I want to recognize those people. We have those people in our midst. I won't name them by name lest I forget somebody or whatever. But we have those people in our midst that, that are a challenge to me and an encouragement to me and to all of us. And they keep things going. And so I want to recognize them. And then he goes on. He says, he says, recognize or respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So we start to get a little bit. It's not just our peers who work harder than us or who work very hard in our midst. But it's actually people who are over us or before us, in front of us, is really what it says. And what does it mean that they're in front of us? Well, it means that they're leading, for one thing. There's an aspect of leadership going on here. There's also an aspect of protecting, that they're standing in front of you to protect you from things that the influence that might come in, whether the influence from the world, from false doctrines, from things in our age that are subtle, that that, uh, leaders have been given the task of protecting you from by warning you about them. Okay, And so we are to respect these people were to acknowledge to recognize these people okay that there are certain people that god has given a congregation 
to uh, lead and to protect in that way. Now, it's interesting. Look there, verse 12. It says, um, they are over you in the Lord. In the Lord. So he's making clear, first of all, that it's in the church that he's talking about. It's not just on the job site or whatever. He's talking about in the church. But why else would he talk about in the Lord? Why would he mention that? Well, it brings to mind, for me, uh, Mark chapter 10. And Jesus is talking to his disciples. Mark chapter 10, if you want to write it down or turn to it, 42 through 45. What's happening there is Jesus is talking to his disciples and he emphasizes to them the difference between Gentile leadership that you would see in the world, leadership amongst unbelievers, as opposed to the leadership that there is to be among believers. He says, the leader must be the servant of all, must be the slave of all. And so leadership within the church context looks different than it does in the military. It looks different than it does at your work. Possibly, depending upon who you, who you have your leaders. But there's a servant aspect. These people are, are not just standing in front of you so that they can stand above you. They're trying to serve you. And so there's an aspect of that that we want to recognize here. And he says we are to recognize those people. And then he continues and he says, he says, um, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, admonish. The kids have that in their bulletin, by the way. So I will define it for the kids. How about that? For the kids, because I'm sure all the adults are good to go on what it means. Admonish is, uh, admonishment is a gentle or a friendly reproof. It's counsel or warning against some kind of fault. Okay, so you see somebody doing something that's going to get them in trouble or going to get them hurt or going to lead to bad things in their life. And so you head them off at the pass. You warn them about it, Right? They're reaching for the hot stove. You admonish them. Don't do that. It's going to fry you. Okay? That's admonishment, right? Well, in the Christian context and amongst adults, it looks a little bit different. It takes on a slightly different uh, meaning. And we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But I think it's interesting there. He says to recognize or respect those who admonish you. Now, how often does that happen? Think about your own Christian life. Think about... From your own perspective, how much you enjoy that, being admonished, being admonished, right? You feel like the person's treating you like that child who's reaching for the hot stove. Wait a minute. Who, what, I'm an adult, right? I'm going to do what I want to do. What, what are you speaking into my life like that for? Get, you, know, you don't even know this isn't your business, right? That's how the heart reacts. That's how my heart reacts. And probably you're not entirely different from me, right? Admonishment is not something that we very often see in the church today in a biblical way. And again, we're going to come to that in a little bit. We'll talk about admonishing in a second, a little bit more. But what I want you to notice about what happens here in verse 12 is uh, how hard is it for us to recognize, to acknowledge, to give respect to the people among us who work hard. They labor among us. I got no problem with that, right? That's easy. I like to do that. I like to acknowledge the people who work hard among us, right? What about uh, respecting or acknowledging, recognizing those people who are over us, who have some form of leadership, right? Well, that might be slightly more difficult, but still, like, we like to do that. I mean, you know, we, 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 give, we give honor, we give respect uh, where that's due, and, and certainly to leaders that's due, right? That's not a big deal. Now, what about to those who admonish you? Acknowledging those who admonish you. 
And again, we're talking about leaders here. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking back in my own life to times when I've been admonished and times when it has come from church leadership, when I've been admonished by church leadership. And it's not enjoyable. I didn't like it. Right? I didn't like it. And part of that is because we live in a culture, we live in a day and age where I'm an individual, I'm an adult, I'm going to make my own decisions, and if I am going to make a decision that you think is going to screw up my life, bummer, that's too bad, don't say anything about it. I'm going to make my own decision, I'm going to press forward, right? And so there's, a, there's something in our flesh and something in our culture that makes us kind of put a stiff arm to admonition that might come into our lives, right? And we live in a day and age where in Thessalonica there was probably one church. So if you decided you, you weren't going to go to church anymore because, because uh, you know, the, the, the leadership admonished you or Paul came to town and chewed you out for something, you were going to go to a different church, where would you go? Nowhere. You wouldn't commute to the next town over, right? And there weren't a lot of options there in Thessalonica. And so in this kind of a context, it was more of an accepted thing. But in our day and age, it's so easy for us. It's so easy for us just to split, right? If, if I hear something, someone speaks something to me that I didn't like to hear, I'm out of here, you know? I can, I can shop around or I can, I can go to the next town. I can do some other things like that. But this is the context where he's, he's saying you're to respect those people. You're, you're to acknowledge God has put them there. They work hard among us. They're our leaders and they're given to admonish me. They're given to admonish me. So it gets a little more difficult as it goes on. You know, I mentioned that I've, I've been admonished before by pastors. I've been admonished by uh, my wife, rightly so. I've been admonished by uh, college roommates and friends. I went to Moody Bible Institute and had some great godly friends. And they would get on my case at times because I was reaching for the stove, so to speak. And they would tell me about it. And they would warn me. They would caution me. I didn't always like hearing it, but they were right. That was the Lord using them in my life. I've been admonished by friends, godly friends since then who, who are close to me or by other ministry leaders or church leaders in different contexts. And it's God's voice into my life. And if I were to run from those things, I would be a weaker person for it. I would be uncorrected in my life in, in ways that I need to be corrected. So let's recognize that God has put spiritual leaders over us who work for our good and they lead us and they even admonish us when that's needed. And B, let's respect them. Respect them. This is verse 13. So uh, we ask you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Esteem them very highly or show respect or honor. He's moved on from just acknowledge that these guys are there and recognize that they have this position now to how we how we relate to them, that we honor them, that we show respect to them, that we hold them in very high regard. And one of the reasons we are to treat these people in this way is because really to show respect and love for these people, for these leaders God has put in our life is to show respect and love for God and his kingdom, for his church, recognizing this is the way God has ordained it to be and i am under that this is god's goodness for me so when we respect those who labor for the kingdom 
we are declaring how much we value that kingdom and the work that goes into it. And we were, when we respect, disrespect those servants, those representatives, we show disrespect and disregard really for God himself and what he has put in place over our lives. He's the one who sent them. So let's think highly of those whom God has given us to carry out the work of the kingdom. Let's respect them. And then, point number two in your outline there is the second half of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. This is our behavior toward our peers. Previously was our behavior towards our leaders. Now it's behavior towards our peers, right? It's a charge to the church how they should relate to one another. How they should relate to one another in their everyday lives. This reminds me of Romans 12:18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, our family, just because of uh, the history that God has, has given us, we have traveled all around the world and visited churches all over the place. And we've been in a lot of different contexts. And, and you know what it's like if you visit a church where there's, there's conflict. You can sense that when you walk in the door. You can tell that there is not peace going on. There is something wrong. You don't know what it is, maybe, but there's something wrong. There's just something's missing, and you can kind of sense that. And uh, that's what he's arguing against here. He wants us to be at peace with ourselves because that kind of a situation, when you walk in and, and you can't really tell what it is, but it's like there's an electricity in the air because this side doesn't like that side or those that age doesn't like this age or there's something going on, that is not the kind of representation of, of who Christ is that we want to portray. That's not really showing to other people that God is a reconciling God and he's reconciled us to himself and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, right? When we're behaving in those kind of ways, when we have that sort of lack of peace, that tension between us, we're giving off the exact opposite image, right? He says, be at peace among yourselves. Now, I know this isn't always easy. It may be usually not easy, but it means something more than just a ceasefire, Okay, if I'm in an argument or disagreement with someone or if there's some sort of conflict going on, he's not just saying, you know, cease fire and stop open hostilities for the moment. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about seek that reconciliation. Seek to be healed in your relationship with one another. Go after the person. Talk to them. Make it right. How much of Jesus' teaching was was along those lines? So let's strive to be at peace with one another. That's how we want to behave towards our, our peers, those who are around us. And so now we want to turn and talk to behavior in ministry, behavior in ministry, point number three there, or behavior towards those to whom we're ministering. Point number one was how we behave towards those ministering to us. Point number two is our peers. And point number three is how we behave towards those to whom we're ministering, right? Oh, you're saying, well, I'm not really a minister. I'm not in the ministry. Um, you know, why are you talking to me about this point? Well, Ephesians 4 talks about the gifting and the design of the church. It talks about all these gifts that God has given to the church, and they're varied and they're different, and they're not all given to the pastor, right? They're given variously throughout the church. And there are all kinds of them, right? There are gifts of service. There are gifts of teaching. There are, there are all kinds of uh, gifts of mercy, uh, different things like that, leadership, shepherding. Those kind of gifts are given, right, in the whole body, and they're meant to work together 
for the equipping of the saints to the work of ministry, to do the work of ministry, we are to be equipping one another, building one another up as a body. And so in order to do that, we need to be ministering to one another. If you're sitting there and you have a particular gift and you don't share it with anybody, we miss out. We miss out. We're not benefiting from what God has given you that he gave you for the purpose of building up this congregation. And so if you're sitting on it, you're not sharing it, we are the weaker for it. We're the weaker for it. So be bold and use the gifts God has given you. So that's, that's one reason that I, I refer to you all as ministers or to you all as the people who do ministry. Another one is if you think about the Great Commission, when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That command is given to disciples who are to make other disciples who made us into disciples, and we're supposed to make others into disciples. That's all of our mission, right? It's all of our mission. So we are all to be ministers. I want us to be uh, thinking about that. I, I want us to to pursue that more actively in our own thinking, the way we think about the week, the way we go about our days, about pursuing ministry that God has given me a gift and God has put me in a position for a purpose in the kingdom. He wants me to do something in the kingdom here. He's given me a job to do. So let's look a little bit what that job is. First of all, he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. There's that word again, admonish. Admonish the idol. Now, that word idol only occurs a few times in the entire New Testament, all of them in First and Second Thessalonians. Nowhere else. There's an adjective form, there's an adverb form, and, uh, and then um, uh, verb, uh, verbal form. And so, but they all occur just in First and Second Thessalonians. Now, so that's apparently an issue they had. That's a problem that they had there. He didn't write about idleness to the Romans. He didn't write about idleness to the Colossians. He wrote to the, to the Thessalonians. So they had an issue going on there. Later on in Second Thessalonians, we learn a little bit more that really because of all this teaching or their response to some of this teaching about the coming of the Lord, they had kind of closed up shop and gone to the top of Rattlesnake Hill and were waiting for the Lord to return. Okay? There's something like that going on that they had realized, you know what? This world is not my home, so I'm not putting any more effort into it. Right? So they weren't even working. They were just kind of getting by expecting the Lord to return at any second. Okay? And so they were unemployed. And so they were depending upon other people to feed them. There was a lot of idleness going on, right? So he says, into that kind of context, he says, admonish the idol. And one admonition he had given to the idol is in chapter 4 and verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians. It said, uh, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you can behave properly toward outsiders. Provide for yourself. Provide for yourself. Work. And so he admonishes the idol. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, I don't think idleness is uh, quite the same issue in our locale as it was in in Thessalonica in the first century. I don't think it's quite the same thing. We have uh, we have other issues that are our. Sins that so easily entangle us, let's say. Other things that are problems for our time and for our culture that may be more than idleness. Now, there may be a few of us who 
aren't looking for work, don't care to work. We're just going to get by, scraping by some way. There might be a few of us. And to those people, I would admonish you, you need to go find a job. It's hard work nowadays to find a job, but go do it. So there may be those of us in that category. But the other kind of issues, I think, that are more plaguing our time and our culture are a little bit different. A simple one, a very subtle one, I think, would be prayerlessness. I know I observe this in my own life, prayerlessness, just that I, I can go do it myself. I don't really need someone else to help me out. So maybe, maybe that's a pervasive one. I don't know if I could observe that across the culture. One I know that I can observe across the culture that uh, we need to be admonished about is sexual immorality. That's a big one. You see that all over in our culture. It's one of the defining themes of our day, it seems like. Sexual immorality, sex before marriage, living together before you're married, pornography. Those are massive, massive defining issues of our day and of our time, of our culture. And so I admonish people pursuing those things. God's will for our life, for our sanctification, is that we abstain from sexual immorality, that we be pure in our bodies, that we be pure in our minds, that we be devoted to Him. So that's my admonition. And this command isn't just given to the guy speaking to speak to you guys. It's about you speaking to one another. And so as you observe your own circle of friends, your circle of influence, and you look at what the issues are that are going on there, maybe it's these issues. I'll bet these issues are in there. There may be others. Admonish them. Be bold. Be willing to do that. Be willing to say to your friend, look, you're going down a path. You don't want to go down. You need to stop. It's going to lead to this and this and this. It's sin. Don't do that. Okay? Be willing to admonish. Be willing to accept admonition. We live in a culture that is so independent. So independent. We would hate it if someone saw what we were were doing when we were at home. Just stay out. I'll be there Sunday morning. You stay out of my house. You stay out of my life. That's the kind of culture we live in that keeps people at arm's length. We don't want people to know. Be willing to accept admonition. Be willing to give admonition for your part. So he says here, admonish the idle. Now the next behavior for ministry is to encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. We need to be comforting and we need to be consoling to those who are discouraged. Do you know anyone who's discouraged? I do. I know some people who are really discouraged. They're discouraged for all manner of reasons, all manner of aspects in their lives. Go back to people looking for work, haven't been able to find adequate work for extended periods of time. That can be discouraging. This person is trying to be obedient, trying to provide for their family, and they can't seem to find adequate employment. And so they're suffering through. Encourage those people. Hold them up. Encourage them. Console them. Now, there might be some of us who are faint-hearted for other reasons because we've been wrestling with something in our lives. Maybe, maybe we just look at ourselves and we see, because of a lifetime of trials and hardship, maybe we look at ourselves and we see, I'm just a failure. I just can't make it happen. I just can't get through. And they're ready to throw up their hands and quit. They're faint-hearted. Encourage those people. 
Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Encourage those people. Encourage them. Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 4, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and things which are not seen are eternal. Console them when they're faint-hearted. Some are faint-hearted because you've been battling sin forever, and you can't defeat it. You feel like you cannot defeat it. Be encouraged. Paul is about to pray something for us that is super encouraging in my own life, and I hope it is in yours. He's about to pray this for us. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. That's encouragement when you're struggling with sin and you can't get out of it. That's encouragement right there. He will do it. He will work in you. So let us not ignore the faint-hearted, but encourage them. And then see, help the weak. Help the weak. Sometimes a person just is unable to help themselves in some way. This person just needs someone to walk with them a little bit, through a little bit of life. Help that person. Don't ignore them. Don't shun them. Because sometimes their weakness doesn't really look like it fits in on a Sunday morning in church. You know? Weakness can take all kinds of forms, and sometimes you think, help the weak. Help the weak. And for those who are weak, I say this. First thing you need to do is admit that you're weak. And that's not comfortable. For me to admit that I'm weak, that is not comfortable. But that's the first thing. That means we have to let go of a lot of pride and ask for help. For the person battling some sin or problem in this life that's got him beat down and discouraged, let me encourage you to seek help from someone else in the church, from a close Christian friend who's a strong Christian, or someone else in the church or church leadership. Seek help. You don't have to be alone. In fact, the enemy wants you alone. And when you stay alone in your struggle, you are playing by his rules and you're right where he wants you to be, alone. That's not what he has for you. So let's not shun the weak. Let's help them. Because we're all weak in some way, right? We're all weak in some way. And while we're doing that, we need to remember to be patient. Point D. Be patient. Think about the times when you've admonished someone. You've gotten the courage and you've admonished this person. Did they respond in a super great way that you want to Facebook about? Not usually, right? It can be challenging. Right? It can be hard to stick with this person. Be patient. Be patient with them. It's not easy receiving admonition. You need to be patient and understanding of that. We have received a lot of patience from God. If he were quick-tempered, we would all be dead. But he's not. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's the way we need to be toward one another. Let's be patient. When you're trying to help someone... And you're encouraging them. You're trying to help the weak. You're trying to help the weak. And they stay weak. And you're trying to help them. And you're trying to help them. That gets old fast. Right? And you can get to the point where you think, you know what? It's never going to work anyway. 
I'll just ditch them, right? And that's what you end up doing. Help the weak. Stay with them. Be patient. Be patient. God has been patient with me and he's been patient with you. So admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient. So these are the things that I've called behaviors for ministry, behaviors for ministry. Now, let's look at behaviors for everyone, point four. Behaviors toward everyone, toward everyone, all right? So he kind of gives a, a principle at the bottom that we can kind of hold on to and take with us, okay? First of all, he says, A, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay evil for evil. Now, funny story, I was watching a uh, some YouTube video of some martial arts dude who was whooping up on people, and it was a neat display, neat demonstration. I thought, man, I wish I had those kind of skills. And so my daughter walks up to me, and she says, Dad, isn't that repaying evil for evil? Because he was whooping on all the people who wanted to whoop on him. So I had some splaining to do, but... He says, don't repay evil for evil. And uh, this reminds me of Romans 12, where he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Don't avenge yourselves, right? Leave it to the wrath of God. So give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Don't repay evil for evil. Now, just think about it for a second. Think about it for a second. Is that easy? No. No. That is not easy. Our, nat- our natural bent is to retaliate, right? And for guys, maybe even retaliate physically, right? That's in there. I, I remember that as, you know, from when I was a child. It's not natural. It's not easy. Because sometimes when someone does something to you, they do an evil to you, you really just want to give it to them, don't you? One way or another. One way or another. Now, I heard a... Uh, I was listening to the radio driving back from the wedding yesterday, which was beautiful. And uh, there was a caller called into this show and said, uh, what should I do? He said, I've got this neighbor who just moved in, an apartment complex, parks in my spot all the time, has for months. So I went to him and I said, you know, this, this spot's reserved for me. And the guy said, get over it. And so uh, he says the guy has a great stereo system that he plays super loud all week long, late, late into the evening, right? And he... He won't turn it down. He's going to do what he's going to do, right? He said, so, some mail of his was accidentally delivered to my house. And among them is a check. He says, I have the check sitting on top of my shredder. What should I do with that check? Right? And evil had been done. And this guy's thinking it would be so easy just to tip it forward and pay him back evil for evil. Right? That is not the way Christ behaved, right? Think about Christ. Perfectly, purely innocent Son of God, taking the death that you and I deserve. Completely unjust. Completely unjust. Taking the death that you and I deserve because of our rebellion against God. And this is what it says about Him. He was wounded for our transgressions. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. And then how how did he respond? What's the next line? He really nailed him, right? He really gave it to him. Turned the angels loose on him. Tore him to shreds. He opened not his mouth. 
He did not repay evil for evil. Don't repay evil for evil. And there are plenty of opportunities for that. Think about how often we're wronged. How often we perceive that we're wronged in our own mind when actually we weren't. That happens plenty. You come home and you think, man, why, why did he say that? Why did he say it that way? And you take on this wrong in your own head. You didn't even mean it that way. It was no wrong, but you built it up, right? Well, there are times when we're genuinely wronged. Someone really has wronged us. How do we respond then? How do we respond? We're going to shut them off, shut them out, exclude them, be rude to them, get them back. Something worse, what are we going to do? Don't repay evil for evil, but point B, do good to one another because sometimes it happens from our own midst. Newsflash, okay? It happens sometimes from our own midst that someone does evil to us. Someone wrongs us in some way, right? This is an inward-looking in the church itself. He's looking within the church and saying, talking about how we relate to one another. So when someone wrongs you, how will you repay them? How did Jesus say that people will know we are his disciples? By our love for one another, right? By our love for one another. Love means even when a wrong is done me, I'm going to repay with good, not with evil. So do good to one another. And C, do good to others. So now he's beginning to look outside the doors of the church. He's spent so much time talking about what goes on in here, in our relationships. Now he's looking outside the church and he says, do good to everyone. Point C, do good to others. Do good to everyone. It's an outward looking reflection. He's talking about the way we treat other people. So if I have someone in my life at work or at school or maybe a neighbor who is mistreating me, who is doing some evil to me, I have an opportunity to represent Christ in this relationship and do good to this person, do good to them. So there's, there are a lot of commands there, and that's why I started with such a foundation, Right? It's hard to come back and say, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, right? Some of us like lists. Some of us rebel against lists. I rebel against lists. <laughs> but when the foundation is there, when we understand what God is really saying to us, what has happened, what are the established facts, and we understand that, now we understand he's talking about how we relate with one another, just how we relate, how the kingdom of God should behave, how the church of God should behave with one another. So how does this prepare us for the Lord's Supper? I mean, here we have the Lord's Supper. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. What does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, this brings to mind uh, 1 Corinthians. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, you guys are you're all used to reading 23 and following when it comes to communion. But I want to read for us 17 through 22 and see if you can hear today's message reflected in these verses. He says, but the following instructions, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes, goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who do nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He's talking about these factions, these divisions that were in their midst in, uh, in Corinth. These things that were going on where uh, there were sides. They were taking sides against one another. And then they would try and come take communion together. Think about that. Communion means commune, to be together, right? And here they are divided. And they've got factions, okay? Reminds me also of Jesus' words in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus says that we are to leave our offering at the altar to go to a brother who has something against us so that we can heal the breach in that relationship before we then come and bring our offering. So the Lord's table is a similar kind of context. We're to strive to be at peace with one another. And so my challenge before we take communion is is if there is a relationship in this church, if you're looking around the church and you have a relationship with someone here that you would say is not a peaceful relationship. Now remember what peace means. He said, be at peace with one another. And then he started talking about admonishing, how we should admonish, right? So the fact that there exists as admonishment does not mean there is not peace. The kind of peace we're talking about has a place in it for rightful admonition of one another, okay? So it's not just a peace as in total calm, no one ever says anything, uh, you know, to anyone else that might be difficult to hear. That's not what we're talking about. But he says, be at peace with one another. And so as you think around the room, look around the room, maybe not, you know, don't give dirty looks, you know, to the person that you're... But you may need to forego communion today. You may need to skip it. No one's going to laugh at you or take note, you know, or I won't hear that, you know, that you pass the plate or whatever. But you may need to skip it so that you can go to that person and make peace in your relationship with that person. Don't worry about communion. They'll be here next month, okay? All right. So make peace with that person before we take communion today. If I could have the men uh, who are going to serve come up and join me, please.